Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all the people of the Lord said, Let us rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. Acts 2, 34 and 35 say, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So lift up your hearts. Let's pray. Father God, you have raised up your son, our prince and savior Jesus from the dead and seated him at your own right hand. He is king and lord of this world. The empire of Alexander the Great turned to nothing. The Roman Caesars, once lauded as gods, are all cold in their graves. Genghis Khan's conquest is now just an interesting chapter of history. Napoleon and Hitler's ambitions came to naught. The Aztec, Aztec kingdom is buried in jungle vines. All these kings and kingdoms came to nothing. But the kingdom of our God and of his Christ shall not fail, shall endure for endless ages. Now we, the children of the kingdom, have reason to rejoice evermore. For by the blood of Christ we are reconciled unto you and have been brought into this kingdom of joy and glory. So almighty God, we worship you now through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. amen. Picture the scene. A young husband, a newly married husband with his young bride. They live on a 197 million square mile plot of land. They're the only people on the planet. And the Almighty commands them to take dominion of it all. Tame it and fill it. And God wasn't joking. Now picture a different scene. 30 AD, 11 disciples are charged to go throughout that same world preaching the gospel to every inhabitant. Once again, a vast commission. Both the dominion mandate of Genesis and the Great Commission in the Gospels are staggering tasks. And God loves to ask his people to do things far beyond the seeming strength and capacity of their ability. He has David fight Goliath. He whittles down Gideon's army to 300 to battle the superior Midianites. He commands Joshua to conquer Jericho's formidable fortress by marching Israel around it silently. Why does God love to give such massive commands to his people? So that when the victory is won, when the commission is fulfilled, when the mandate is accomplished, when the battle is over, that God alone gets the glory. God has called you to do things that to your earthly eyes can seem and in fact probably are beyond the scope of your ability. And this shouldn't swallow you up in despair it should spur you onward in humble, faith-filled obedience. God never calls you to something without also pouring out upon you his Holy Spirit that you might labor, striving according to his working, which works in you mightily, Colossians 1.29. Look at all that God has called you to do and then rejoice. God intends to do great and mighty things in and through you, far beyond what you can imagine and far beyond your capacity. And he does this so that when he accomplishes it, 
All that you can boast in is the faithfulness, power, and goodness of your God. Acts 2, 36 and 37 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Let's pray. Father God, we all too often hear your clear commands to us and then look to ourselves to attempt to do what you command. Instead of looking to you and trusting in you and relying on you, we trust in horses, chariots, and the strength of man. What you've called us to is far beyond us, and we are grateful for this, so that you alone receive the glory. Forgive us for trying to go about doing your will by relying on the arm of flesh. This is simply unbelief and pride. If we in the church regard sin in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual, so we now confess our individual sins to you and Selah. And we do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. amen. Let's rise for the assurance of pardon. Acts 5, 30 and 31 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Uh, Pseudo-gods are offended by pseudo-sins, which can only be erased by pseudo-forgiveness. But the true God, through Christ, gives true forgiveness for every last one of your sins. And it is because of this glorious truth that I can declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The sermon text is a couple of verses, three verses from chapter 12 of Hebrews, and then several more verses in chapter 13. This is the word of God. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And then chapter 13 at verse 9. And be not carried away, carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. For we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him, without the camp, bearing his reproach. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have given to us your word. Father, we pray that your word would guard us this morning, that it would be a shield, a buckler, our tower. Father, we live in a world that is full of trouble, full of shame, and we need a covering. We need a protection. We need defense. And so teach us now. And so guard us and protect us because we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. A couple months ago, I read an article 
in the uh, magazine called First Things, uh, the article was entitled Shame Storm. It was entitled Shame Storm, and it, the writer chronicled how true and false accusations of wrongdoing combined with the internet and social media have mixed together to create storms of shame. You've seen this happen uh, in the news. You've seen this uh, on social media yourself. This particular author chronicles how a few minutes on C-SPAN about her went viral. And by her reckoning, she had a hard time finding work for several years uh, because of it. Uh, one, uh, one person uh, speaking of this says, I, I think nobody has quite figured out what should happen in cases like this where you have been uh, legally acquitted but you're still judged as undesirable in public opinion and how far that should go and how long that should last. So this is speaking of one particular situation where the, a gentleman was accused, he was acquitted and yet the shame continued, the smearing continued, the, uh, the, the slanders continued. The, the author herself, uh, she describes, she says, no one has yet uh, figured out what rules should govern the new frontiers of public shaming that the internet has opened. Shame is now both global and permanent to a degree unprecedented in human history. No more moving to the next town to escape your bad name. However far you go and however long you wait, your disgrace is only ever a Google search away. And there, you know, the internet is forever, as they say. And, and we, we know this, we've seen this happen. We live in a world that has become Shameful, it's become full of shame. This is not really a new thing. This is not really a brand new thing, but perhaps uh, it is more, uh, more evident, more clear, more viral. Uh, maybe it's more long lasting because of uh, technologies, information technologies. But, but this, is, this is a fact, this is a fact of this world. It's a fact because of course, on the one hand, we really have done shameful things. We, we have done things that are embarrassing, we've done things that are wrong, we've done things that are sinful, and so we, we know that reality, we feel shame, we know shame, and, and so we're afraid of being exposed, we're afraid of that, that shame being uh, uh, spread around, of, of real things that we have done, but we also know that people are just as uh, capable of spreading false rumors and false accusations or getting half-truths and half-realities and those are spun and, and then there's this cloud that develops. Well, what really happened? We don't really know, but it was probably bad. And so then not only is there real sin and real shame that we face and we're afraid of being exposed, but we're also frequently just driven by wanting to avoid anything close to that. You know that if you stand up for something, if you stick your neck out, if you uh, defy somebody in power, chances are that somebody's gonna try to dig up some kind of dirt on you or you know, real or imagined. They'll make something up to try to take you out and so we're frequently driven by avoidance of shame. Just not that. I just don't want to be embarrassed. I just don't want that 
plastered on the internet. I just don't want that going out for everyone to see and everyone to know, so I think I'll, I'll do this instead. That article got me thinking, and, and, I, and I, I don't think, I think every one of us has at some level, we face this reality. But the good news is that the Bible speaks to this just as it speaks to all those areas of life that we have to face. The gospel is good news and it's good courage for even this. It's good news and it's good courage even for this moment. It's good news and good courage uh, for uh, the viral shame storms. It's good news and good courage for us in our work environment, in our families, in our neighborhoods, where perhaps we see the possibility of the shame coming, the possibility of our, our names being slandered, the possibility of embarrassment. And so I wanna look at these two texts from Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 13 this morning and hopefully address this and encourage you and give you courage to face it. But as we do so, I wanna get a running start. I wanna get a running start. Uh, really, actually, I'm gonna start off the beginning. As many great biblical themes, you really just have to start at the beginning, but it's, it's not surprising that even the theme of, of shame and shame avoidance is right there in the opening chapters of Genesis. Shame first enters the world in the Garden of Eden. In the sin of our first parents, you recall maybe at the very end of chapter two of Genesis, remember Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They were, they were naked and not ashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to feel bad about, completely exposed and completely happy. But of course, that doesn't last long. Genesis 3 comes, Eve is tempted, she sins, she leads her husband, her husband uh, is, is led astray, he sins. And it says, and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that or they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And of course, God comes looking for them and they hide themselves even further in the, in the bushes amidst the trees of the garden. And God says, Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam and Eve are now ashamed. Their eyes have been opened, they see that they're naked, they, they are guilty before God, they know there's something wrong in the world and now they feel shame. Shame is that feeling or fact of exposure. It's visceral. It, it frequently is, has a sort of a physical sense of disgrace, of defilement, dishonor, humiliation embarrassment. Just stop for a second, just okay, just think for a moment. When were you most embarrassed? When, when were you most ashamed? And, and it might have been something sort of trivial, but still just really embarrassing. Or perhaps something terrifying and serious and awful. If guilt is the objective fact of wrongdoing, 
if guilt is the objective fact of wrongdoing, here is the law and you broke it, here is the sin and you committed it, if, if guilt is the objective fact of wrongdoing, shame, I would submit to you, is the subjective feeling and the public exposure of that fact. It's the feeling of it, how awful it is, and then also combined with a, a certain measure of public exposure or fear of public exposure. If anyone finds out about this, I think I will die. And again, frequently it's very physical. You literally feel sick. When Aaron led Israel to worship the golden calf, they did so, the, the text says, naked to their great shame. Shame is something that is, is like, it's like nakedness, it's like exposure, but also sometimes the Bible describes shame as something that actually covers you, like a garment, or covers your face. Think about the way that when you're embarrassed, Frequently, you get red in the face. You get hot in the face. Maybe you start sweating. I mean, it's, it's again, literally physical. You feel it and you can't shake it. You can't make it go away. You can't stop it. You're wearing it. It's a spoiled reputation. The feeling, the sense that you can never get your reputation back or the sense of your being part of a despised status. Everyone's looking at you. They hate you, they despise you, they look down on you, they're judging you. It's like a, a blot, a, a filth, a, a mark that is impossible to remove, you think. You think of Joseph not wanting to put Mary to open shame, supposing that she had sinned to become pregnant with Jesus. Shame is the private and public humiliation of being wrong, or at least everybody thinking you're wrong or foolish. It's the removal of respect, the loss of respect, the loss of glory. So with all that, we come to our texts and, and there's some striking language here. In our text, it says that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Or the next verse, he, he endured such contradictions against himself that we are to remain resolute and confident, unwearied, not fainting. Think of him, how he was contradicted, how he was falsely accused, how he was maligned, how it was paraded in front of everyone. Consider him who despised the shame of the cross. Or again in the next chapter in Hebrews 13, Paul says we're to establish our hearts with grace and then he explains what he means. He says it's a good thing that your heart be established with grace, verse nine. Not with meats, not with the altar in, in Jerusalem, but rather going to Jesus outside the camp, outside the gate, bearing his 
reproach. So we're to look unto Jesus who despises the shame, look unto Jesus who is contradicted and slandered and maligned publicly, and not only are we to look unto him, but if you piece this together with the next chapter, we're, we're to go to him. We're to go out to him where they leave the carcasses of the sacrificed bodies. We're to go out to him where they crucified him. We're to go out to him where his shame was centered, bearing his Reproach. So in the first instance, we are to rightly despise the shame. In order to rightly despise the shame, we must welcome a certain sort of shame. So I'll take both of these passages and, and work our way through them. And in the first instance, if we're to rightly despise the shame, we must welcome a certain sort of shame. Nobody really wants to welcome shame. But Paul says we must go to him bearing his reproach. There's a certain kind of shame we must welcome. How does Paul say that we are to establish our hearts with grace? He says, it's a good thing for you to establish your hearts with grace. How do we do that? Well, he tells us there in verse nine, do not be carried away, be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines and also not with meat. <laughs> Not by diverse and strange doctrines and not by eating meat. What does he mean? He means you can't establish your hearts by doing respectable religious things. You can't establish your heart and make it strong and make it safe by just doing the respectable things. Here in the context, he's talking specifically about priests and Jews trying to, to trick grace out of the sacrificial altar in Jerusalem after Jesus has come. He's, he's saying, you know that the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who've, who've believed in Jesus and now they're, they're being tempted to go back to Jerusalem. They're going back to the old covenant and saying, this whole thing with Jesus is not working out. We're being persecuted. We're being thrown in prison. It's gotten really hard. Maybe we need to go back to Jerusalem. Maybe we need to go back to the old covenant. At least the Jews are protected politically. At least, at least the Romans could look up, a, a, you know, in their, in their foreign people's guide and find a section that said Jews. And the Romans would say, oh, okay, you're part of the, the, the Judaism sect. Okay, yeah, we've got a place for you. Fine, you can function. The Christians weren't in the book. And so many of the Christians are thinking, well, maybe we can, we can, we can, we can put this together, we can piece this together. I mean, we'll, we'll keep trusting in Jesus, but we can kind of hide under the shelter of Judaism because they're a, a, a respected class. At least they have a place in society. Let's, let's go back there. And Paul says, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. Of course, at one time, that altar in Jerusalem did point to Jesus, who is our sacrifice for sin, but those sacrifices could never actually take away our sins and now that Jesus has come, turning back to the old covenant is worse than useless. Because as the Jews are rejecting Jesus, as the Jews are rebelling against God, God's going to bring judgment on the Jews in Jerusalem. And this is why Jesus had prepared them that this was going to happen and they needed to get ready to leave. And so the book of Hebrews is written to them saying, no, don't go back. You're not going to be safe there from the shame from the fact that you are maligned and disreputable out in the world, the fact that you're persecuted, because, the fact that you have a hard time getting work and, and a hard time in the world, it's not gonna fix it to go back. You're not gonna be safe there. You can't 
concoct a theology that will fix this or go back and hide in the rituals of Judaism. But the temptation here that Paul's talking about, it varies through the ages. You and I are not tempted to move to Jerusalem, most of us. But it's the temptation to respectability. It's the temptation to various strange and new doctrines and and fads, intellectual trends, uh, to, to try to fit in. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm also really into CrossFit. I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but, I, but yes, but I, I'm also, you know, I, I, I like to dabble in, you know, Freudian uh, psychoanalysis. I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I, I also do this thing over here. And, and see, see I, I'm normal. I mean, I am a Christian, but I'm, I'm also into the things you're into. You see? It's a temptation to respectability attempts at various doctrines and trying to hold it together. The Jews had a nice building. They had formal sacrificial liturgies and inner circle inside the camp, inside the gate. So think of that as being inside the camp, inside the gate. You're in the inside. You're you're in the popular clique. Everybody likes you. You're moving up in the company. Everybody in the neighborhood, you know, you've got the, the nice house, the nice cars, whatever, and, and everybody looks up to you. Or at least you're in with ev- the group that everybody looks up to. This is the temptation. C.S. Lewis has a fine essay called The Inner Ring, where he's teasing this out. And, and, in, and in many ways, it, it's actually just the way the world works. It's, it's, there, there's always going to be leaders and followers. There's a sense in which that's just the way, that's just the way God made the world. And, and, and we, need to, we need to recognize that, but we have to also recognize that there are temptations that come with that. There are pitfalls. There are sins that can, be, that can accompany that. It's tempting to try to find your safety in respectability, in what the world sees as establishment. They have nice buildings, they have, they have nice orderly ceremonies. They look nice, they look together, they seem together. We'll be safe there. But Paul flips it around. He says, actually, what they consider the trash heap where they dumped their, the carcasses of the sacrificial animals when they were done with them outside the camp is also where they crucified our Savior. That, that's where they killed our Lord, outside the gate. You, you, you can't do both. You can't say, well, I want a little bit inside the gate and a little bit outside the gate. Pick one. Are you going to Jesus outside the gate? Are you going to Jesus and are you willing to to embrace his shame? Are you willing to to bear his reproach or not? You can't be inside the gate and outside the gate at the same time. You can't be inside the camp and outside the camp at the same time. It's one or the other. And Hebrews says, let us go to him outside the gate. Because that is where God's grace is found, outside the gate where Jesus was nailed to a tree, hung up naked for all to see, 
mocked and jeered until our sins were paid for, until God's justice was completely finished. Let's go to him. That's the only place where it's safe. In the beginning, God killed animals and covered Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. And in the fullness of time, God laid the wrath of his justice on his own son in order to cover all of our shame forever. And so it's, it's the grace of shame to cause us to know our sin, to know our nakedness, and, to, and that drives us to the cross of Jesus in order to despise the shame of, of confessing our sins, dealing with our sins, owning our sin in Christ. It's actually a blessing. So, so this is one way in which we embrace shame. We welcome shame. We say, wherever I've sinned, show me. Expose it so that I can run to Jesus, so that he can cover it. and recognizing that he endured shame for our sin. I remember years ago when I was teaching, I called a parent one time to report something about their student that had happened in class, and, and uh, in, the, in the course of the conversation with the parent, I was not completely truthful with the parent. And when I hung up the phone, I knew immediately that I had lied and I needed to put it right. And so I, I called back a second time and I proceeded to apologize for a good half of my lie. And upon hanging up a second time, I was thoroughly ashamed and embarrassed as I proceeded to call the parent for a third time to finally tell them the entire truth. And I've never had to do that again. <laughs> because I hated it. it was, ah, everything in me, I'm just utterly embarrassed. And, and so, but it's, it's working both ways. There's sort of two senses, two uses of shame in that moment. One is it's driving me to put it right. And we feel the shame of our sin. It, it's, it's supposed to drive us to put it right, drive us to reconciliation, drive us to Jesus. But then secondarily, it's got this wonderful preventative sense in it. I will never do that again. When, when you've had to humble yourself and confess your sin and make it right and own it, you, you remember that. I'm not going back there. I don't wanna do that ever again, no. This is the grace of holy shame. A holy shame tells the truth about our sin. You really have sinned, you really have done wrong, you really have biffed it, go make it right. And so you, you drive, it drives you to Jesus to make it right and then having made it right, it, it sort of guards you, it sort of protects you and you stand there, I'm never going back there. I love Jesus and I love his word and I'm not going anywhere else. That's glorious, that's good. That's the blessing or the grace of, of holy shame. But in a fallen world, rebellious sinners either obey that summons of holy shame 
to go make it right, to hide themselves in Jesus, to be guarded by him or else refusing to repent of their sin, they have to do something with their shame and the Bible tells us what they do. They embrace it. They embrace it. They begin to call evil good and good evil. And, and the Bible says, Philippians 3 says, they begin to even glory in their shame. They, they say, this is not shame I'm wearing. This is pride. This is glorious. This is good. This is wonderful. What are you talking about? There's, there's not really any neutrality on it. And, and I think sometimes we, we read these passages in scripture and we think, well, I know, yeah, I know down the road, maybe there are some real extreme, wicked, evil people, but I think we need to take scripture really seriously on this point. There's not really any neutral ground. You're either driving to the cross to deal with shame honestly and completely, embracing his righteousness, or else ultimately you're driving away from the cross and you will necessarily find yourself celebrating sin. You can't just sort of be okay with sin. You can't sort of just be in a neutral ground where some of us sin and some of us don't sin and we're just sort of, we're working it out. No, no, no. You're either ultimately celebrating righteousness and, and despising the shame of sin or else you're celebrating the shame of sin and you're ultimately gonna be despising righteousness. So listen to this in Proverbs 2. Speaking of the evil man, the father warns the son, they leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness who rejoice to do evil. They don't just kinda do it. They party while they do it. They rejoice to do evil. They love it, the verse goes on, and they delight in the frowardness of the wicked. They rejoice, they delight. They don't just kinda do evil. They rejoice in it, they delight in it. Or Jude chapter one, verse 13 says, they are raging waves of the sea, speaking about evil men again, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. They're raging waves of the sea and they foam out their own shame. To them, it's their glory. We are mighty waves and look at our foam. Or in Peter, in Peter's letter, 1 Peter 4, Peter's addressing the Christians who are perhaps uh, already begun to be persecuted for their Christianity or he's preparing them for it and he's, he's urging them not to be surprised by this. And he says, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. He just said, we have a lifetime in our past of plenty of sin. We used to live like the Gentiles. We used to party like the Gentiles. We used to get drunk like the Gentiles. We used to sleep around like the Gentiles. Plenty of that. Then he goes on, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. You see, in order, follow the logic, in order to turn away from God's holy shame, in order to turn away from that, you can't just stop in a neutral place. You have to begin to rejoice in evil, delight in evil, but you can't even stop there. You have to celebrate it 
it's holy to do these wicked things. And now, not only that, they not only think it's strange that you don't go with them, but they now begin speaking evil of you. You see, it's gone in a complete circle. Now you are evil for not blessing their wickedness. You are evil. It's, again, it's just, there's no neutral ground. There's no option to say, well, some of us do this and some of us don't. No, it's either good and holy or it's wicked. And notice how repentance even plays into this. You used to do these things, Peter said, now you need to wait for it. As soon as you go and say, please forgive me for lying to a coworker who routinely lies, what have you done? You've just condemned that worldview that says it's okay to lie. That's, it was wrong for me to lie when I lied to you, please forgive me. You're condemning that. And initially they might just think it's strange. Okay, funny, weird religious guy, strange religious person. Okay, sure, whatever. But as you continue to live in righteousness, as you continue to live in obedience, and you continue to insist on this standard, you are, perhaps without even saying a word, condemning them. and they will speak evil of you for it. The logical end game of refusing the message of true shame for sin is a complete reversal or inversion of glory and shame. It, it must result in calling good evil and evil good to the point that you are evil for not joining in with them in their evil. You are evil for not rejoicing with them in their evil, and the goal is to make you feel ashamed. That's the goal. The, the, the good evil reversal applies to the glory shame reversal. Either you will join with them in glorying what they glory in, or else you must feel ashamed. The goal is to make you feel bad about confronting their sin. The goal is to make you feel bad about not endorsing their lifestyle. The goal is to make you feel bad for even thinking what you think. And so this is also what it means to bear his reproach outside the camp. They falsely accused Jesus. They said he was a blasphemer, a rabble rouser, and a traitor. And they condemned him, they crucified him, speaking evil of him. And if they sought to shame him, they will seek to shame all who follow him. If they hated him, they will hate you. Jesus said this. And so this is what happens right on schedule in the early chapters of Acts. Peter and John faced this when they were beaten and rebuked and commanded not to preach Jesus anymore. And what does it say, Acts 5? They departed from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced in it. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And so this is the real test then of, 
of whether we get it is, is when the false shame comes, when the false accusations come, when they seek to make you embarrassed for being a follower of Jesus, of standing with him and standing with his word, do you rejoice for being counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and do you, do, you go right on merrily along? Or do you cower? Do you flinch? Do you panic? The first application of all this is the straightforward invitation to have your shame covered by Jesus. You see, the, the thing is, is that you can't actually stand up in the shame storm if you still have shame that's festering. So the first is just an invitation. Have all your shame covered by Jesus. You must be entirely covered by Jesus. When Jesus came to wash the feet of Peter, you remember this? Peter was apparently embarrassed. He was ashamed to have the Lord wash his stinky feet. How embarrassing. But Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter immediately got the point and asked for the full bath then wash my whole body head to toe. And the same is true for our shame. Unless Jesus covers you, you have no part with him. Jesus has white robes. He has white robes for everyone who comes to him, but you must come to him. This invitation is for all sinners and all sin. And it is particularly for the sins and the filth that you think cannot be covered the shame of sexual sin, all kinds of sexual sin, Jesus covers. The shame of abortion, Jesus covers. The shame of divorce, Jesus covers. The shame of wayward children, Jesus covers. The shame of being fired from your job, Jesus covers. The shame of not accomplishing the great things you said or thought you would, Jesus covers. So take it to him. He's waiting outside the camp. He's there for you. But in order to do that, you have to recognize that you have that shame. You have to go to him. That's where he is. He's out there where all the shameful stuff is. And he's out there where all the shameful stuff is is because that's where your shameful stuff is. So go to him. Refusal to go to him is you're denying the shame is there. You're not gonna stay right here in the city where it's warm and cozy in the respectable seats. No, go to him. Go to him. He will cover you there. The second application is that whatever Jesus has covered with his blood and righteousness is utterly and completely blameless. If you have been covered in the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, then you are completely blameless. You must not give one wit for the accusations of the devil or the shame weaponizing of the world. I had no idea that Francis was going to read Romans 8 this morning. In our scripture reading, who will bring a charge against God's elect? If you've been covered in Jesus, then none of it sticks. All the real stuff was paid for, all the false stuff bounces off. Right? All the real accusations were paid for and all the false stuff doesn't stick because you're covered in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Peter and John rejoiced to suffer shame for the name of Jesus and they did not cease to preach and teach Jesus Christ. So too, when you are privileged to suffer shame for the name of Jesus, do not cease to walk with him. Do not slow down, do not hesitate. 
Do not panic. In Psalm 51, I always think this verse is just insane where David's in the process of repenting for, for adultery and murder. He pleads with God to wash him clean, to make him white as snow. And then he has the audacity to say, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted. In the same breath that he's been confessing these awful sins, he says, but if you forgive me and wash me clean, then I will teach transgressors how to be converted. I will teach them your ways. If you forgive me of my sin, I will be more bold to talk about you. Hear these words from Joel 2, this wonderful promise that God has fulfilled in Jesus. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. So where are you looking? Where are your eyes? Are your eyes on your sin? Are your eyes on the crowds? Are your eyes on the people down the row from you? Are your eyes on Facebook? Are your eyes on the media? Where are your eyes? The exhortation is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who went to the cross despising the shame, despising the shame of being falsely accused and despising the shame of bearing your sin. Despising it all. Fix your eyes on him. Do not grow weary. Lay aside every weight. Listen to these words from this hymn. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds and these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that Jesus is our tower, that in him and in his cross, we cannot be touched, we are safe. So Father, teach us to lift up our heads, teach us to stand boldly, teach us to be unafraid, teach us to deal with our sin honestly, completely, fully, so that we have, may not have nothing to fear. Make us bold, make us courageous as we stand in him. Amen. You may be seated. Remember that the only way to get to this meal is through the door. The door is your baptism. Only those who are in Christ can eat this meal, which is Christ. But your baptism into Christ is not just the bare fact that you got wet. Your baptism is that by the grace of God, your dead heart was quickened, and by faith you trusted in Christ to be your redemption, righteousness, and sanctification. Saying that the door to this table is the door of baptism is just another way of saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the only way to come to this table. If you try to go around the door, climbing over the walls of self-righteousness, you will come to a table, but the bread you eat will be the bread of judgment, and the wine you drink will be the wine of the fierceness of God's wrath. But if you come by faith through the door of Jesus, 
God looks at you and sees Jesus. Your sin is left out on the porch. Christ carries you to your place at this table and feeds you with his body. So enter the door by faith. Eat this meal by faith. And remember that from the first to the last, it is Christ who won your salvation. Christ who feeds you this bread of life, his own eternal life. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that uh, you give us this meal as a reminder of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, his broken body and his poured out blood. And Lord, we thank you that it's not just a mere reminder, but it's also a means of grace to nourish our faith, to grow us up into the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's in his name that we give thanks for this meal. And amen. The charge is this, how do, you, how do you live without shame? How do you go about your life without shame? And the answer, as, as Toby explained this morning, uh, David says it this way in Psalm 34, verse 5. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. Shame is either going to cause you to turn to yourself and look to your own righteousness to save you or to find some means to cover your sin, or it's going to cause you to look to Christ, to turn to Christ, to seek Christ. And those who look to him are lightened. Their faces are never covered with shame. So as, a, a, as an, a, an addition to that, read your Bible. <laughs> Be faithful in his word. How do you look to Jesus? Look to him in his word. Be faithful there. Now hear the benediction of the Lord. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.